I was asked to introduce myself for those who are new tonight. So um, I'll say, what will I say? My father grew up here. I grew up in Oregon on the advice of a Jesuit from St. Louis to my father and grew up on a farm. And now I work, I've done mostly high school ministry, but now I'm working at the White House Retreat Center and also at Kenrick Glennon Seminary. Those are my two works. I've been here five and a half years. It's been marvelous. It's a joy to be back in my dad's stomping grounds. I entered this life back in 94 towards the Jesuits, um, and it's been quite a ride since. So a joy to share with you the fundamental insights of St. Ignatius applicable to our day. So life-giving. I may be biased, but I do think the Ignatian charism is unlike any other today, the most apropos to the needs of our day. That's a strong statement, I realize, but hopefully this mission will bring some of that to light. What a gift he is to the church and continues to be. If we tap in to the depths of his charism, so each charism is an angle at which we follow Jesus. So whether from the, the Carmelite angle or the Franciscan, Dominican, Jesuit, Benedictine, whatever it be, those are all different angles of following Jesus. Ignatius has a lot to offer our world today. All right, let's begin with a prayer. And we'll pray a prayer that for many years, people thought Ignatius actually composed the Anima Christi, the Soul of Christ prayer. It's a prayer of deep intimacy. I recommend it, especially after you receive communion in those moments of intimacy with the Lord. We find out that the prayer did exist before St. Ignatius, but he was the one who made it popular. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within thy wounds, hide me. Suffer me not to be separated from thee. From the malignant enemy, defend me. At the hour of my death, call me, and bid me come to thee, that with thy saints I may praise thee forever and ever. Amen. St. Ignatius of Loyola, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I have my statue, my relic, to keep me on track of St. Ignatius. We spoke in our last talk about the triptych of Ignatian spirituality and to understand this in a whole way. When we're speaking of God, we're speaking about the ever greater one. God really is God. And Ignatius always had that profound reverence, even for the very name of God. He never lost track of whom he was speaking of. And this God, as awesome as he is, sustaining the universe in existence, is perfectly and fully manifest in Christ our Lord, the second panel of our triptych. Christ our Lord manifests to us the fullness of the Godhead. When you want to know how God acts, you look at Christ in Scripture. You look at his life, and as the church has spoken about him through tr tradition also, And knowing Christ, who comes down, who takes humanity to himself, and we are amazed, St. Augustine will say, that he calls us his friend. No longer slaves, but friends. And with St. Thomas, we say, my Lord and my God, <laughs> you call me friend? This is an amazing relationship we have. And so it is. And knowing God, in his wholeness, now perfectly manifested, completely manifested in Christ, we can now find God in all kinds of particular ways in nature through his church. This encounter with Christ in the sacraments, Christ becomes very real for us in very practical, intimate ways. 
one of the seminarians was speaking about his conversion with me recently on a pilgrimage, and he spoke about how for him a point of conversion was if we are body and soul creatures and we have bodies, why would this God who loves us so much not become a body or not have a bodily way of relating to us? Catholicism has an answer for that. <laughs> he does have a bodily way of relating to us. This is my body. As we enter into this triptych of spirituality of Ignatius, last night we spoke about the pillars and fundaments of the spiritual life. And he gives us the principle and foundation, which is exactly that, which roots us in this becoming lovers for God, huh? that you and I are continually created in Jesus, for a purpose, okay? We're continually created in the image of God, who's the Son, capital I. We're continually recreated in this image for a purpose. And so the more we enter into that purpose, which is the praise, the reverence, and service of God, we're entering into ourselves, which is to be a lover. Someone asked me today a very good question. How do you become a lover? <laughs> it's like, that's a very good question. How do you become a lover then? If my true self is to become a lover, how do I become a lover? Well, I propose to you that you have to be Marian. You have to, you have to receive love. St. Thomas Aquinas will put it in terms of, we've got to start with humility. Humility leads to gratitude, which leads to wonder, which leads to contemplation. In humility, I'm amazed that this God loves me so much. What does he see in me? Why does God love me so much? And I allow God into all those areas of my life. I keep surrendering territory to God. And as I allow him in those areas of my life, I see what difference it makes when I allow God in. I allow myself to be loved. Love is first an experience of being loved. It's actively receptive. It's Marian. Mary is not just a simple sponge. She's actively receptive ready to receive anything that God has for her. And as I'm filled with gratitude for how much God loves me, the, the reality that I'm alive is amazing. That particular sperm of my father meeting my mother's egg 54 years ago that created me, any other one of those, what is it, two million sperm would have been a sibling. Huh? God planned me for all eternity. That's amazing. And he's kept me in existence for all, all, since then. So I, I'm amazed at that. And I, this gratitude leads to a sense of wonder, the great Catholic imagination, to be amazed. A beautiful gift to be amazed. To have a sense of wonder that I'm alive. And this leads me to contemplate the things of God and to see with God's eyes, to be amazed at how loving God is and how loved I am. And even those areas where I try to seal up against God, if I open those up, areas of woundedness, let's say, the Lord wants to love me out of those places, out of those dark places, out of those places of woundedness. God is amazing. He is such a lover. St. Ignatius could contemplate the Trinity and their total self-gift one to another and their gift to him, and it would lead him to tears. He could contemplate the stars, those gifts of God, and tears would start to stream down his cheeks. <laughs> he started to lose his eyesight because he cried so much. That's a good problem to have, by the way. He cried out of gratitude for how amazing God was and why he loved him so much. This is our lover, St. Ignatius. So I, I, we spoke last, yesterday about how we find ourselves in losing ourselves. We find ourselves in entering into this plan of God of praise, reverence, and service. This is at the beginning of the four movements or weeks of the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, which is that book, that journal he was keeping at Manresa where he started having all those mystical graces we spoke of yesterday. This is the book, 
And in the first movement of four, we ponder the principle and foundation. We ponder how tempting it is to grab to sugar substitutes, what we call sin. So sin is always a form of selfishness. And it's always an obstacle to our fulfillment. We always will lose our balance when we place ourselves at the center. I'm made to be other-centered. Everything about me speaks of being other-centered. My face, your face, you've never seen your own face. It's the most precious part of you, huh? It, your eyes reveal your soul. I can see every one of your faces. You've never seen your own face. You've only seen a reverse reflection in a mirror. I've never seen my own face because I'm not meant to. It's meant for you. I'm made to be gift. So even our body, there's a theology of our body, St. John Paul II says, that speaks of otherness. I'll find myself in being a lover towards you, losing myself in love for you. St. Ignatius is a profound lover. The free person detaches from self and is God-centered. And Jesus will remind us that the one who sins is a slave of sin. Sin is always a form of slavery. It always turns back towards the self. I'm not free to love. Freedom is your ability to love. I'm only free insofar as I'm able to love you, to see your goodness, to affirm your dignity. And how, how much that fills us when we're living in that love, what a wonderful sense of self it gives to be a giver. What a lovely sense of being filled with love and to give it all away. As Adam and Eve, our first parents, received everything as a pure gift from God and gave it all away to nature, to each other, back to God. They kept nothing. They were absolutely rich and absolutely poor. Their hands were always Marian, if you will. <laughs> they didn't grab to anything until Satan came along and said, hey, you know, God really isn't a father. He's a little stingy. You might not want to trust him. You better reach out and grab it. And so they grabbed the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of the tree of life. Two trees in the garden, at the center of the garden, perhaps some church fathers say it was the same tree. That fruit of the tree of life was meant to be given them, says Revelations, the last book of the Bible, as a gift. We're meant to eat of the fruit of the tree of life as a gift. But they reach out and grab it ahead of time. So all sin is a breaking out of time. All sin is somehow a breaking out of time. A break out of the present, this relationship with God, God above, God in Jesus, and God revealed through his church in sacraments and in nature. I break out of the present, and I'm either living in the past or in the future. No wonder there's so much anxiety in the world today. Anxiety is where I get away from the Father's heart. And my heart no longer beats with the heart of the Father. So I'm anxious. There's a limited number of resources. I better prepare. I'm worried. I don't know how this is going to end. And I break out of the present, God, Yahweh, I am who am, and I worry about the future. Or I beat myself up for the past. Grace is only in the present, dear brothers and sisters. Mary saw the effects of sin in her crucified son. She knew sin, what sin cost. It has a real cost. And God Almighty wanted to pay that cost with us and for us. So that first movement of St. Ignatius concludes with a dialogue of amazement that mercy has taken upon itself my sin to carry it away. We now move to the second major pillar or foundation of Ignatian spirituality. Given us in what he calls the meditation of the call of the king, the call of the eternal king. This invites us to contemplate 
first the life of an earthly king so that, as a paradigm, we can contemplate the life of the eternal king. This critical meditation will not only define Ignatius's life back in the 1500s, but offers us a lens, an Ignatian lens, by which to read the entire gospel. It's very fleshly, incarnational, real. And it specifies how you and I are called to live outside of ourselves so as to find ourselves. It's, of course, focused on Jesus, as all Ignatian spirituality is. And it's not focused on any spirituality of personal perfection or what stage in the spiritual life am I at or what castle have I arrived at. Huh? There's no manual of perfection as in the medieval manuals. When we're focused on Jesus, our beloved, we begin to find ourselves as images in the image. He's the image recreated in him. We discover our sonship, our daughtership, our fundamental identity as beautiful, beloved children of God. Beautiful, beloved, and blessed, I like to say. The three Bs. Do you know your fundamental identity, that you're beautiful, beloved, and blessed? Child of God. Our sonship, our daughtership, is not self-achieved. It's received. It's received. It's Marian. She's at the heart of the church. We spoke about her. St. Joseph learns from her. He's at the heart of church, right, right with her. And we need to burrow into the heart of the church. On the edge of the church, there will always be scandal. There will always be Judas Iscariots. And some people leave the church because of Judas Iscariot. They're like, I've seen Judas Iscariot. I had that experience. Like, but you're leaving Jesus because of Judas Iscariot? Yes. Huh? Like, no, go to the heart of the church. Go to the heart of the church where there's no spot or wrinkle that's holy without blemish, Ephesians 5. How do we know our direction? Are you, are you working your way into the heart of the church? That's a question. Or are you moving your way towards the extremities of the church, to the place of scandal, to the edges? There's a funny story of a man who goes to this Catholic priest and he says, Father, I find you Catholics hypocritical. You don't live everything you believe. And the priest is taken back a little bit, and he blinks to himself, and he says, you know, you're right. Come join us. You'll fit right in. <laughs> and what the priest is explaining to this man is that Catholicism provides the remedy for hypocrisy. All human beings struggle with hypocrisy. To not show my true face, to try to cover for myself, huh? to live a little bit of a double life. But Catholicism provides the remedy, which is authenticity, which is self-revelation, which is the direct way to the heart of the Father. Jesus was so excited to give his church the gift of confession. That's his first gift, the resurrected Jesus. Peace be with you. Who sins you forgive, they are forgiven them. He's so excited to give him this gift of confession because in confession, we have true ownership. Jesus gave the parable, Luke 15, of the prodigal son. Our sins affect our relationship with God. We know that. But they also reflect our relationship and wound our relationship with each other. So the prodigal son wisely says when he comes to his senses, Father, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. So we need to take ownership not only before God, but before our fellow man in the church. Because my sins, insofar as Father Anthony sins, and he does, they cause negative ripples in the church. And insofar as I do good things, it causes positive ripples in the church. But I need to take ownership in front of somebody who represents the church. Thankfully, one person is enough. <laughs> one priest is enough to take ownership. That's why the direct way to the heart of the Father is through a priest. This is Jesus' idea. And you see why now. Full accountability the remedy for hypocrisy that all human beings struggle with. Confession is what the Hebrew people call shuv. Shuv is, means to do a 180. To have this confession experience, this metanoia experience, is to shuv, to do a 180 and to come back towards God. I recognize those areas that are pulling me away towards selfishness, and I want to turn back to my true self, which is a lover. 
someone who's focused on the heart of God, wanting to please the heart of God. As we grow older, your confessions will get longer. Did you hear me right? (laughs) As we get older, our confessions should get longer because we're no longer confessing so much the sins of commission, actions we do, but sins of omission. As we get older, we should be supported more of the weight of the church and the needs. We should be offering up our aches and pains, our knee problems, for a church very much in need. We should be using our time, we have much more time, to form ourselves in the faith. Not to consume media in my, in my lazy boy, but to also uh, listen to podcasts, to form ourselves in the faith, to pray for the church very much in need, to pray for the priests being killed right now in Nigeria and the Catholics there. We have much more opportunity to do that, to be advocates for a world very much in need as we get older. And so we confess our sins of omission. We just passed the terrible 50th anniversary of a decision that took the lives of six times as many children as Hitler took Jews. Excuse me, 10 times, over 60 million. So we pray, we pray in in reparation for the sins of our family, of our nation. And so confession is this experience of coming before the Lord and making present his confession of sin before the Father. That's why we properly call that sacrament confession. It makes present Jesus' confession to the Father of our sin. What a gift. So in this particular meditation of Ignatius we're considering now, God makes his election or choice known to all human beings, his plan for them, and also his plan for each one of us in particular. We come to know our truest and deepest vocation through this meditation. Ignatius calls it the call of the king. So we begin our prayer here in the customary Ignatian way, begging God for the grace that everything we do in this prayer be directed purely to the praise and service of his divine majesty. Does that ring a bell? Praise and service? Yes? Good. You passed the principle and foundation. Absolutely. Praise, reverence, and service. Our call. So we're praying for that grace. We're then invited to use our imagination to see the synagogues, villages, and towns where our Lord preached. Doesn't matter if you've been to the Holy Land or not. Might be a nice help, but it's okay if you haven't. Just use your imagination a little bit. Engage it with regard to these places. Imagine yourself there. Compose the place just briefly in your imagination. You don't need all the details. Just a little bit. And then move on to the next step, which is the desired grace. All Ignatian prayer is ordered by a desired grace we ask for at the beginning of the prayer and a colloquy or a dialogue with Jesus or one of the saints in the scene at the end, okay? All Ignatian prayer has the desire at the beginning and the colloquy at the end. These two bookends orient our prayer. So in the present meditation, St. Ignatius instructs us to ask for the grace not to be deaf to Jesus' call, but prompt and diligent or disponible, as we spoke of yesterday, to fulfill his most holy will. That's a great grace, huh? That ability to be free and to say yes to whatever God is going to ask of me. That would be a very free person, wouldn't it? I'm able to say yes to whatever God, I'm able to enter whatever love act Jesus wishes from me and with me to accomplish. So here we note that it's a grace to be responsive to God, to be able to respond with alacrity quickness, huh? as does Abraham, whenever God asks something of him. Abraham made a lot of mistakes, by the way, if you look carefully. But whenever God asked something of him specifically, he responded with alacrity. And he learned from his mistakes. Leonardo da Vinci maintained that an artist never really finishes his work. He has reputedly said, art is never finished, only abandoned. (laughs) 
And so it is for human beings trying to conform a work of art to the image the artist has in his or her mind, right? So for us, that's, that's probably a true statement. We never quite get it exactly right. We have to just let it go at a certain point as an artist. But that's not true for God the artist. The Father loves the constant fine-tuning and the recreation of his precious children, you and me, in the image of his Son. Our goal, our purpose, our task is to be supple clay in his hands, willing to be molded wherever God would want to mold me, pliable, disponible, to let God massage out those areas, those nodules in my heart and my soul that are not conformed to him, that are dry. Allow him to pour the dew of his Holy Spirit upon those, to soften those, that everything about me is pliable and can be formed into whatever God wishes to make of me. So let's move on to the main points of this meditation, so relevant to our day and age. So in the first half of this two-page meditation, which is longer than an average one for the spiritual exercises, Ignatius wants us to imagine the grace we would need to respond to such a saintly king who needs our help to make the world a better place for all. Think here of perhaps King Louis IX of France, after whom our city is named here in St. Louis. In St. Ignatius' imagining, this king would have been chosen by God, by the Lord himself. What a good and holy man. It'd be a great honor just to see him or to walk in his presence, as many of us felt it was to walk in the presence of John Paul II, or Mother Teresa, or any other clear saint of our day. If John Paul II were alive today and were in a one-on-one -on -one with you, looking into your eyes and asking something of you personally, how would you respond? If Mother Teresa had a personal request of you, how would you respond? Would you put her on hold? <laughs> I doubt it. So too, this good holy king makes his will known to all his subjects in general and to you in particular. He states that the desire of his heart is to conquer the hearts of all unbelievers for God, that they may find themselves and flourish in relationship with God, for from relationship comes their identity. He knows that otherwise they will be lost. He wants to show all unbelievers the true face of God. He wants them to thrive and flourish, for he is a great lover. And he wants them to discover their identities as lovers. And then, miracle of miracles, he shows how invested he is personally in this enterprise. Now, this is very key. He's going to get down and dirty and lead us in sweat for the salvation of others, this God of ours. He's not going to save us from a distance. He's going to toil for us, for the salvation of all these people needing salvation, the entire world. He's going to exhaust himself for them. He's going to be tired from the journey, as we read in his encounter with the Samaritan woman, tired from the journey. God's going to get tired for us. He's going to eat poorly at times on the battlefield of life. He's going to go thirsty. He's going to lack clothing at times. He'll be laboring under the heat of the day like a good shepherd, and he'll perform vigils by night, as any good shepherd would with his sheep. This, dear sisters and brothers in Christ, is the chosen route of God to conquer the hearts of all unbelievers around him. He embraces the toil. And because of his nobility and his being chosen by God, we know he will indeed win the victory. Now watch. This noble king, today, is inviting you personally to join him. There's a personal invitation given to every single Christian. What an honor. An invitation to join him in this enterprise of saving the world, of redeeming the world. God who could 
who creates us without needing us, chooses not to save us without our participation. He chooses apostles, he chooses disciples, women and men, to follow him, to walk in his footsteps, to win the hearts of unbelievers, to redeem the world. You and I have a place in the redemption of the world. And Jesus wants it that way. Somehow he makes us critical cogs in the process. It's it's an ennobling honor to walk in the footsteps of Christ. He wants us to eat as he eats, to drink as he drinks, to perform vigils when he performs vigils, to toil in the day, to labor with him and watch with him by night so as to share with him in the victory to come. Ignatius says, now think how any person with a good and noble heart would respond. Only a miserly soul like the man we see in the Gospels who comes to Jesus but then turns away because he's attached to his possessions would walk the other way. Would we also turn away? Or would we instead feel completely inspired to hold the gaze of Jesus and say yes, enthusiastically even? That's the question. This now sets the stage for the central part of the meditation of St. Ignatius. So flip the page over there. And St. Ignatius tells us that if the earthly summons of such a good and noble king chosen by God would rouse our fervor, how much more so, note the word more, lover's word, how much more so would we want to respond ever more generously to the call if it were Christ our Lord, the true and eternal king, calling us to the same battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil into eventual victory. Indeed it is. This is how God chooses to redeem us. He goes to the lowest place to meet us where we are and to invite us personally to join him in this enterprise, to conquer all the world for his sacred heart. God Almighty takes the lowest place among his creatures. I can see where it might have been hard for some some angels to be like, get your mind around that one. Hmm? Like, shouldn't you, if you're God, like, show that you're God and keep a distance from your creatures, especially lowly human beings, especially sinful human beings who offend you? But God is not that way. He goes to the lowest place. God, who right now is sustaining the Milky Way galaxy, which scientists tell us has as many, this would be a high end estimate, as 100 billion stars, has a special love for this little planet Earth among the 100 billion. With a perfect temperature, average 59 degrees Fahrenheit, perfect air for sustainable life, 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen. He sets it up perfectly here as a special love for planet Earth. We go to Mars, like, well, how about Mars? That's minus 85 degrees Fahrenheit. That's rather cold. (laughs) Venus, 867 degrees Fahrenheit. You don't want to live there. (laughs) We wouldn't make it 10 minutes. God holds us all so perfectly together. By the way, the Big Bang Theory, which you may know is proposed by a priest, uh, a Belgian priest, George Lemaitre, who was trained by Jesuits. It's a, the Big Bang Theory is a very controlled explosion. It would have to be a very controlled explosion, unlike a bomb which causes random destruction by randomly moving atoms. The Big Bang is more, more like a firework, you know, that blows up and then it's like, it's got the shape of a heart. <laughs> That's how the Big Bang works in this expanding universe that we're seeing. In 1989, Roger Penrose, he's an atheist, a physicist, calculated the likelihood of everything holding so well together in in the whole galaxy and in our world in particular. 
planet Earth. And the, likely, the likelihood of having such low entropy, entropy is, is things fall apart by, by nature, it's the law of entropy, things tend to fall apart. To have such low entropy where things hold together in, in cohesive whole so well, the likelihood of that happening randomly is one to the 10th and then add 123 zeros to that, to that 10th. <laughs> That's the likelihood of things just happen to come together nicely and hold together well. There must be a God. You'd be crazy to think there's not. <laughs> you wouldn't be very scientific. All science points towards God. It's unreasonable to doubt the existence of God. God sustains our galaxy and many other galaxies, another high-end estimate, maybe a hundred billion galaxies that we're discovering more and more. But this God, who holds it all together, wants to go to the lowest place on planet Earth. So God Almighty starts his public ministry literally on the lowest point on Earth, where the Jordan River enters the Dead Sea 1,400 feet below sea level. That's where God starts his ministry. He goes low. <laughs> this is our God. Isn't this amazing? You see how St. Ignatius is fleshing this out for us? Like what kind of God would want to wash my feet? Our God. <laughs> you know the story. Our God would want to wash my feet. Why is he attracted to the lowest of places? He must be love. He must be love. He wants all of me. He wants all of you. He wants all of humanity. People may have lost their likeness to God. They don't act like God, but they never lose their image. Everyone is made in the image of God. And God is sustaining them in existence that they may come to their senses. So St. Ignatius invites us to ponder Christ our Lord in his desire to woo all mankind, if you will, what the Church Fathers call suasione, which means persuasion. God uses persuasion to draw all men and women to his sacred heart, to transform them, to draw them into his heart, to make them new and to send them out. Jesus, we spoke about yesterday, models what it is to be a human being. Vatican II speaks about he reveals man to himself and makes his supreme calling clear. What it is to be a human being. And he beckons and invites us to enter into the most noble task ever given mankind. He speaks of this deep desire of his heart, which is to conquer the whole world to his sacred heart through the Immaculate Heart of Mary. The mediatrix of all graces. Jesus is all grace, of course, huh? And he comes to us through her. She's the mediatrix of all grace, because that's Jesus. He will only conquer hearts through humility, however. You've got to go low. I've got to allow Jesus to go to those lowest places in me that I'm kind of embarrassed to show, that are not very pretty, and have an encounter there. I need to surrender that territory that I'm afraid to surrender to God, that I'm embarrassed about the way I've been behaving, my addictive sin, my tremendous anxiety in a certain area, this anger I have, this visceral anger, this wound that I keep trying to protect with many layers because it hurts. That's where Jesus wants the encounter. It's all over scripture. That's where you and I have our paralysis. We're unable to move there. That's where you and I have the withered hand. I'm not able to give. I need God to touch this withered hand that makes me truly charitable towards others. I am the leprous man, and the leprosy is my sin. And I'm invited to fall before Jesus and invite him to touch me in my most leprous part. And there have an encounter. Those who wish to labor with Jesus to be touched by Jesus and then to labor with him and suffer with him, can now follow him into glory. 
Not only those in the church are invited to salvation, but God wants to save every human being. And the Holy Spirit is even working outside of the visible bounds of the Catholic Church, trying to draw everyone into salvation, says Vatican II. The one who hears and answers this call becomes a disciple, living out this proclamation within God's church. This is lived out within a church. Now, unfortunately, we experienced in the Protestant Reformation a cutting off of the human being from grace experienced within the church. In other words, this reduction of salvation to this act of, I accept Jesus, this act of the will, this act of this personal experience of justification, pulls us out of this experience of the church herself. True moral virtues, however, are like diamonds and are formed under pressure, and they are lived out within the church. So we do this together. It's not a I'm saved, it's a we. As soon as I experience this salvation wrought by Christ, I recognize you next to me, and we are together in this enterprise, and we are invited together to offer our lives for the sake of the world. In response to Christ's summons to follow him and work out our salvation, St. Ignatius presupposes that any good person with basic good judgment would offer himself entirely to this noble endeavor, to be a soldier for Christ. The state of laboring with Jesus is filled with an absoluteness and a dignity, but also has personal risk. Jesus reminds us more than once in the Gospels that Suffering remains a significant part of his mission. He did come to suffer in love and to redeem the world by an act of suffering born in love. The world initially takes offense at the cross. And in fact, all religions outside of Christianity try to flee suffering or explain it away, but always unsuccessfully. Christ became man, says Paul Claudel, the the poet and writer. God became man not to take away suffering or to explain it, but rather to fill suffering with his meaning, with his presence. God came to fill suffering with his meaning, with his presence. Christ did not say, rejoice that I've done all the suffering for you. You're good to go now. But he wants to experience these things with us. We may be tempted, as Peter was originally, to say, far be it from you, Lord, to have to suffer, because I don't want to suffer. <laughs> My skin says, no suffering, please. Now, suffering for its own sake has no purpose. We weren't meant to suffer. We weren't meant to die. It wasn't part of the original plan. No wonder it's hard when we experience death and suffering. Very hard. But Christ came to give it a new meaning. And it now has a new meaning of intimacy. Every suffering is an invite to intimacy. And there's no way for salvation except through this receiving this gift of intimacy without some pain and some cross. Always with Jesus, though. question one asked about, if I give my life completely over to Jesus, maybe he's going to ask for some really hard suffering. Maybe I won't live long. It's really a red herring, because we never will be asked to suffer without Jesus carrying the lion's share of the, the load. It'll always be with Jesus. All suffering given by God, whenever we receive a cross, it's going to be with Jesus, and we're going to be yoked with Jesus. And he's going to carry the lion's share of the yoke and the weight. And so we have to go at the same speed of Jesus. If we get ahead of him trying to carry this cross, we'll rub ourselves raw. If we pull back too much, we'll rub ourselves raw. We just have to go at the speed of Jesus. And I think we, you and I have to get good at also shifting the, 
the lion's share of the weight onto Jesus because he's the God-man. <laughs> and he can carry this weight a lot better than you and I can. We're not very good at suffering, but God will give us the strength that we don't have on our own. All suffering is an invite, is an invite to intimacy. And when born in love, it's incredibly redemptive. Incredibly redemptive. Satan is always playing on us. Many of our seminarians struggle with this lie that you are alone. You're alone in your suffering. Nobody gets you. Hmm? Satan always likes to play that alone trick. It's a big lie. We are not alone. We are yoked with Jesus. And the yoke becomes easy and the burden becomes light and redemptive. And there is no other way, brothers and sisters, than to bear suffering with love. It's the only way to make it into the next life. Lastly, St. Ignatius invites us to listen to a lover's response to this noble call. The person depicted by Ignatius is clearly focused on the heart of the eternal king, the desires of Jesus' heart. This person is overwhelmed by the love coming his way. He's complete insofar as he's found himself in love. And he has no greater desire than to respond in love. And that actually is the heart of discernment. When I allow love to so overwhelm me that I, I ask, how can I best love you? How can I better, of all the ways of serving you, Lord, what's the better way? What's the majis for loving you in return? What would better please your heart? What would more please your heart, Lord? That's the heart of discernment. Letting go of the things to which I'm attached, because I can't enter discernment until I first let go, and then allowing myself to be profoundly loved, and then what is the better way for pleasing your heart? What would more please your heart between these two good options, or three good options, or four good options? That's how I found my call. Same dynamic. Choosing what God has already chosen for me. Choosing the deeper desires of his heart. This person, says St. Ignatius, will not only say yes to the work to conquer other souls for Christ, but they'll make themselves completely responsive to the desires of the commander as possible. They'll work against their own sensual and worldly love that pins them down and ties them to this world making them less available for the noble enterprise. They're going to work against these tendencies they have to cling to things of this world for security and find their security in God alone. St. Thomas Aquinas will say this wonderful passage, a man's soul is so much the more perfectly drawn to God as it is detached from affection to temporal things. I can be drawn towards God the more I'm released from these things down here that I tend to grab to. Remember the image of the dance, right? I'm able to enter into the dance with the Lord. I'm poised. My soul is ready. My soul is longing for the Lord. Holy indifference, which is the heart of love. I'm not clinging to anything. Let it be done to me according to your will. We listen to those noble words of the lover's response. The person is so humble, so Christian, they want to suffer the same things in their own flesh that Jesus did. They would even prefer to live his life of poverty, chastity, and obedience and receive some of the offenses and opprobrium he did if God would choose them for such a state of life. The choice remains God's, but that would be their preference. The person allows herself, himself, to be chosen. Seeking first the kingdom of God, Jesus says. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all the rest will be given you besides. We know that only a very small percentage of Catholics are called to the religious state that live the same life in its exteriors in poverty, chastity, and obedience as Jesus did. Nonetheless, we should all be open to it, our children and grandchildren. Part of our call to open up to the summons of Jesus. All of us, our call to this intimate experience with Jesus, to labor with Jesus. Be amazed at how 
be in wonder at how deeply God goes to his creatures, how deeply low he goes to meet us in our deepest areas. Huh? God goes to these low places and wants an encounter with us. And then he wants us to experience that encounter and to draw others into that encounter and to experience what he experiences. But suffering is part of the course. Suffering born in love is redemptive. We have to bear suffering. Think of a mother carrying a child for nine months and the suffering that goes with that, perhaps morning sickness. Think of the suffering in the actual giving birth. Also that a child will be born. Is it not worth it? Huh? Is this suffering not worth it? That's what suffering is about. It's worth an eternal reward. St. Ignatius is teaching us then to be magnanimous. He says the chief virtue of a retreat is to be magnanimous. That means big soul, where I can allow the love of God to overwhelm me, and then I can be generous in response. And I want to give how much to the Lord? Everything. I want everything. I'm ready to go whenever he wants me to go. If he wants to suffer, wants me to suffer with him, I can't suffer on my own. I'm not a good sufferer. Nobody needs to, you know, roll up your sleeves and suffer. Oh, no. You and I are really, probably pretty bad at suffering. <laughs> Let's admit that early on. But with Jesus, it's entirely different. It's an experience of withness, of communion, of union, and liberation, and redemption for all those we love. This is critical vision of Ignatius, huh? We're called to labor with Jesus. God comes down to earth, chooses men and women to follow him, to enter into his experience, to redeem the world. He comes to fill suffering with his meaning and to invite us to enter into that meaning and thus have a part in redeeming the world. And so let us give him glory. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A special thanks again for, to St. Joseph Radio, Lou Cortese, and St. Gerard Magella for welcoming us here. This church was chosen, I'm told, because it has the best lighting and <laughs> the best acoustics. So that's why we are here. So thanks to Father who welcomes us also here. I wish you many blessings. I wish you the light of Christ. Let the joy of his heart uh, be your focus. How can you please his heart? How can you receive the beautiful gifts he has in store for you? Amen.